Richard, Sicily, 2.0 where we cover all crime. I'm as always the tongue-tied and sarcastic Scotty J, the great white snark. And across from me virtually is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. <laughs> yeah, the wonders of technology, people. Yeah, because my, my mic is on. Uh, it just wasn't loud enough. But... Uh, we are back mm-hmm. in our res- we are back in our respective spots. Mm-hmm. I'm, back, I'm back in the uh, the armpit of the Midwest, Illinois. She's back in the armpit of the East Coast, New Jersey. Uh huh. Hey. Jersey gets no love, but I have people that I care about in New Jersey, so it's special. All right, we are going to get into it today, and today we are talking about the person that is responsible for for getting me back into reading history. Milton Hershey? Yeah, you know who would be sitting here. The right James would be there for Milton Hershey. Yeah, I'd be like, I got this. I got this. I still can't believe that man barely made it to the Titanic. Yeah, just think of what would have happened if he had been on that boat. Yeah, I mean it was already dated, but yeah. Well, he already had. I mean, obviously, it already made the money and all. So, but all right. Yeah, I guess well, the school pie wouldn't exist. They no, everything, after- everything yeah. he did later wouldn't even. Well, obviously the later part, but yeah, this because yeah. the school hadn't started yet. So yeah, like yeah, yeah. wouldn't have Twizzlers. I can't eat that. I'm not a big yeah. licorice fan. Yeah. Me neither. Alex, Alex will sit there and get a bag of Twizzlers when we go to the movies, but not me. Ugh. Yeah. I'll get like cookie dough bites or uh, Nestle Crunch. Yeah, Nestle or Crunch some, was, was my grandmother's favorite. Or some peanut M and M's if I'm in the mood. Yeah, or snow caps on the popcorn. Ooh, I'm not a big fan of snow caps. Well, snow caps on the popcorn though, you mix it. In. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. I might, I might have to try that. Now I'm in the mood to go see Barbie again. I just saw Blue Beetle. I want I want to see it again. Although I am waiting for the Nun 2 to come out. Oh yeah. So, yeah. That's I, I, I love the Conjuring movies. It's mm-hmm. about the only one of the few movies past 2000 that I actually enjoy. Now we're going to talk about the first presidential successful presidential assassin, John Wilkes Booth. This Honestly, this is the man that got me back into reading history. 
because I remember I was in Oklahoma and I went to the library and I got the book American Brutus and I started reading it. And today it's on my shelf. Oh, sweet. I there's one thing for Booth I haven't Which I still done. Haven't there, there's one thing for Booth I haven't done yet, and I haven't taken the escape route tour. That'd be cool. Uh I think it's like six or twelve hours long. Yeah. I want to take it. I mm -hmm. do. I just haven't done it yet because I haven't been out there long enough to take it. Oh yeah. Well, if I ever get married, I know what I'm doing on my honeymoon. Come on, honey. We're going to go take the John Wilkes Booth escape route tour. Get killed, right? She's going she's gonna to be back at the hotel fastening blanket or sheet or something into a hangman's noose. Like, what oh. Okay, so John Wilkes' parents were noted British Shakespearean actor Junius Brutus Booth and his mistress. Ah, Marianne Holmes, who moved to the United States in England from England in June of 1821. Now they purchased a 150-acre farm near Bel Air, Maryland, where John was born in a four-room log house on May 10, 1838, the ninth of ten children. Now, like there's there's like three. He's got two older brothers. He's got Junius Jr. and Edwin. And then there was like three kids in the middle that got smallpox and died. Two died there in Maryland. One died going over to England and visiting grandpa. Got this, got the sickness over there and died. See, this is what I told you in the note. If I can remember stuff, I'll throw it in. And they also think that the mad his father went mad because he was a touring actor and he got a letter one night that said his wife had died so he goes back to maryland but she's okay so that kind of set him off a little bit like one night they found him butt naked drunk on a horse riding around the yard which is the best way to go man butt naked drunk on a horse and then there was something with Andrew Jackson that there were some guys, he was friends with Andrew Jackson, and there were some guys who were up for some type of punishment. And Junius wrote a letter that's like, you know, you better let them go or I'm going to come and gut you. And Andrew Jackson was just like, look at this guy. He's, he's a cut up, man. Oh, that's so funny, man. Yeah, they're sitting there laughing. I bet they were, I bet he read it in a cabinet meeting. You guys, you want to hear what Junius said this time? Now, he was named after the English radical politician John Wilkes, who was a distant relative. Now, 30 years after he went across the Atlantic Ocean, his first wife, Adelaide Delanoy Booth, was granted a divorce in 1851 on grounds of adultery. And then he went and legally married his, uh, his mistress. I think they... I want to say Junius had a had a son with her, with his first wife. He was over here in America. He found dad and went, hey, ma, I found him. Guess what? 
so they were legally wed on May 10th, 1851, John's 13th birthday. Hey, you'll never forget your anniversary if it's on your kid's birthday. Now, Nora Titone suggests in her book, My Thoughts Be Bloody, that the shame and ambition of Junius Brutus Booth's actor's son, Edwin and John, eventually spurred them to strive for achievement and acclaim as rivals. Edwin as a unionist and John as the assassin of Abraham Lincoln, and there's no proof to that. I'm saying it right now. Everything I read, I mean, yeah, the brothers had a, there's a big age difference, but the brothers all loved each other. Uh, the three, Edwin, Junius Jr., and John all became actors. There was no rivalry be between them. Booth's father built Tudor Hall on the Hartford County property as the family's summer home in 1851, while also maintaining a winter residence on Exeter Street in Baltimore. The family was listed as living in Baltimore in the 1850 census. I think uh, Tudor Hall is still standing. So that was a place I'd like to visit, although I was told I can't go to Baltimore because it's dangerous. I've had several people go, man, you better not go to Baltimore, man. You'll get shot. Dude, I live in the kink. I can handle this. And as a boy, John was athletic and popular. He became a skilled horseman in fencing. He attended the Bel Air Academy and was, indif was an indifferent student whom the headmaster thought was not deficient in intelligence. <laughs> it's a nice 19th century way of saying your son is retarded. But disinclined to take advantage of educational opportunities offered him. In the 1850, 5051. The way of, say, of saying lazy. What? Another yeah. way of saying lazy. Yeah, you know. The second part. Yeah, he's lazy and don't want to do... Or as my report cards used to say, he's not applying himself fully. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why my report card said that. I should get that made into a t-shirt that says not applying himself fully. <laughs> in 1850 and 51, he attended the Quaker Run Milton Boarding School for Boys located in Sparks, Maryland. And later St. Timothy's Hall and Episcopal Military Academy in Catonsville, Maryland. At Milton, students recited classical works by such authors as Cicero, Herodotus, and Captius. Students at St. Timothy's wore military uniforms and were subject to a regiment of daily formation drills, strict discipline. He left the school at 14 after his father's death. While attending the Milton boarding school, Booth met a Romani fortune teller who read his palm and pronounced a grim destiny, telling him that he would have a grand but short life, doomed to die young, and, quote, meeting a bad end. His he sister also said that break many hearts. She wasn't wrong. Oh, true. Yeah. His sister recalled that he wrote down the palm reader's prediction, showed it to his family and others, and often discussed its portents in moments of melancholy. Hey, look, I'm going to die young. Yay. Yay. 
By 16, Booth was interested in theater and in politics, and he became a delegate from Bel Air to a rally by the New Nothing Party for Henry Winter Davis, the anti-immigrant party's candidate for Congress in the 1854 election. He aspired to follow in the footsteps of his father and his actor brothers, Edwin and Junius Brutus Jr. He began practicing elocution daily in the woods around Tudor Hall and studying Shakespeare. He made his stage debut at age 17 on August 14, 1855, in the supporting role of the Earl of Richmond in Richard III at Baltimore's Charles Street Theater. The audience jeered at him when he missed some of his lines. Yeah, like they could have done any better. Well, that's he back also in the day when began he could real good. Well, yeah, true. That's what I'm saying. Like, of course, I, mean, I think most of the it. crowd was he, drunk. Also, they probably even know where they were. <laughs> yeah, probably. At Baltimore's Holiday Street Theater, owned by John T. Ford, where the booths had performed frequently. In 1857, he joined the stock company of the Arch Street Theater in Passowen in Philadelphia, where he played for a full season. At his request, he was billed as J.B. Wilkes, a synonym meant to avoid comparison with other members of his famous thespian family. Jim Bishop wrote that Booth developed into an outrageous scene stealer, but he played his parts with such heightened enthusiasm that the audiences idolized him. In February of 1858, he played in Lucretia Borgia's at the Arch Street Theater. On opening night, he experienced stage fright and stumbled over one of his lines. Instead of introducing himself by saying, Madam, I am Petruccio Pandolfo, he stammered, Madam, I am Pondifio Pedofio Pat Pantuccio Ped. Damn it, who am I? Causing the audience to roar with laughter. Later that year, Booth played the part of Mohegan Indian chief Uncas in a play staged in Petersburg, Virginia, and then became a stock company actor at at the Richmond Theater in Virginia, where he became increasingly popular with audiences for his energetic performances. On October 5th, 1858, he played the part of Horatio in Hamlet alongside his older brother, Edwin, in the title role. Ah, role. Okay, mess that word up. Afterward, Edwin led him to the theater's footlights and said to the audience, I think he's done well, don't you? In response, the audience applauded loudly and cried, yes, yes. In all, Booth performed in 83 plays in 1858. Booth said that, of all Shakespearean characters, his favorite role was Brutus, the slayer of a tyrant. Hmm. I wonder why. I know, um, I'll get to it later, but there is one surviving picture of the three brothers together when they did uh, Julius Caesar. I'm going to use it as the, the picture for the show. Some critics called Booth the handsomest man in America and a natural genius and noted his having an astonishing memory. 
Others were mixed in their estimation of his acting. He stood 5'8", had jet black hair, and was lean and athletic. Noted Civil War reporter George Alfred Townsend described him as a muscular, perfect man with curling hair like a Corinthian capital. Booth's stage performances were often characterized by his contemporaries as acrobatic and intensely physical, with him leaping upon the stage and gesturing with passion. He was an excellent swordsman, although a fellow actor once recalled that Booth occasionally cut himself with his own sword. Yeah, he did. Historian Benjamin Platt Thomas wrote that Booth won celebrity with theater goers by his romantic personal attraction, and that he was too impatient for hard study, and his brilliant talents had failed of full development. Author Gene Smith wrote that Booth's acting may not have been as precise as his brother Edwin's, but his strikingly handsome appearance enthralled women. As the 1850s drew to a close, Booth was, was becoming wealthy as an actor, earning 20 grand a year, which is 700 grand in today's money. Well, he, was making some, he was making some good bucks. Booth embarked on his first national tour as a leading actor after finishing the 1859-1860 theater season in Richmond, Virginia. He engaged Philadelphia attorney Matthew Canning to serve as his agent. By mid-1860, he was playing in such cities as New York, Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, St. Louis, Columbus, Georgia, Montgomery, Alabama, and New Orleans. Poet and journalist Walt Whitman said of Booth's acting, he would have flashes, passages, I thought of real genius. The Philadelphia Press drama critic said, without having Edwin's culture and grace, Mr. Booth has far more action, more life, and we are inclined to think more natural genius. Now, it was around this time that um, John Brown launched his raid on Harper's Ferry. And when he was captured, Booth was friends with like the, uh, a, a militia regiment in, in Virginia. He actually borrowed some of their clothes, got on the train, and went down to Charlestown, Virginia, where John Booth was held captive. And he was there at the hanging. Now, he's, he's squeamish. He, he didn't like the sight of blood, but he admired John Brown because the man stood for his convictions. I, I find that fascinating. And also, not only was he there, but two features Confederate generals were there as well. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And I believe, if I remember uh, Calvarymen of the Lost Cause, Jeb Stewart was there as well. Basically a who's who. The Philadelphia Press critic drama said without, okay, in October of 1860, while performing in Columbus, Georgia, Booth was shot accidentally in his hotel, leaving a wound some thought would end his life. When the Civil War began on April 12th, 1861, Booth was starring in Albany, New York. He was outspoken in his admiration for the South succession, publicly calling it heroic. This so enraged local citizens that they demanded he, that he be banned from the stage for making treasonable statements. Albany's drama critics were kinder, 
giving him rave reviews. One called him a genius, praising his acting for never failing to delight with his masterly impressions. As the Civil War raged across the divided land in 1862, Booth appeared mostly in Union and border states. In January, he played the title role in Richard III in St. Louis and then made his Chicago debut. In March, he made his first acting appearance in New York City. In May of 1862, he made his Boston debut, playing nightly at the Boston Museum in Richard III in May, Romeo and Juliet in May 13th, the Rob, wow, okay. I'm actually going to include all the dates here because that's a lot of different roles in Right, and, and those you guys have to get were credit where creds do blah blah blah. blah. So right. Richard, those, those guys were well, sorry. <laughs> those you guys know. were trained to do different roles a night. Yeah, but still, yeah. Okay, Richard III, May twelfth, fifteenth, and twenty third. Romeo and Juliet, May thirteenth. The Robbers, May fourteenth and twenty first. Hamlet, May sixteenth. The Apostate, May nineteenth. The Stranger. May 20th, and The Lady of Lions on May 22nd. Following his performance of Richard III on May 12th, the Boston Transcripts Review the next day called Booth the most promising young actor on the American stage. Starting in January of 1863, he returned to the Boston Museum for a series of plays, including the role of villain Duke Pescara in The Apostate, it won him acclaim from audiences and critics. Back in Washington in April, he played the title roles in Hamlet and Richard III, one of his favorites. He was billed as the pride of the American people. That's uh, kind of ironic. A star of the first magnitude. And the critics were equally enthusiastic. The National Republican drama critic said that Booth took the hearts of the Amer of the audience by storm and turned his performance a complete triumph. At the beginning of July of 1863, Booth finished the acting season at Cleveland's Academy of Music as the Battle of Gettysburg raged in Pennsylvania. Between September and November of 1863, Booth played a hectic schedule in the northeastern United States appearing in Boston, Providence, Rhode Island, and Hartford, Connecticut. Every day he received fan mail from infatuated women. Family friend John T. Ford opened 1,500-seat Ford's Theater on November 9th in Washington, D.C. Booth was one of the first leading men to appear there, playing in Charles Selby's The Marble Heart. In this play, Booth portrayed a Greek sculptor in costume, making marble statues come to life. Lincoln watched the play from his box. At one point during the performance, Booth was said to have shaken his finger in Lincoln's direction as he delivered a line of dialogue. Lincoln's sister-in-law was sitting with him in the same presidential box where he was later slain. She turned to him and said, Mr. Lincoln, he looks as if he meant that for you. The president replied, he does look pretty sharp at me, doesn't he? And then he returned another hand signal to Booth. On another occasion, Lincoln's son Tad saw Booth perform. He said that the actor thrilled him, prompting Booth to give Tad a ruse. 
Really? Booth ignored an invitation to visit Lincoln between acts. Well, On November 25th, 1864, Booth performed for the only time with his brothers Edwin and Junius in a single engagement production of Julius Caesar at the Winter Garden Theater in New York. He played Mark Antony, and his brother Edwin had the larger role of Brutus in a performance acclaimed as the greatest theatrical event in New York history. The proceeds went towards a statue of William Shakespeare for Central Park, which still stands today. In January 1865, he acted in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in Washington, again garnering, garnering brave reviews. The National Intelligencer called Booth's Romeo the most satisfactory of all the renderings of that fine character. Boy, wait until he sees Leonardo DiCaprio do it. I love that's the only Bob's Larman movie I like. Is, is that the one he did with Claire Danes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Especially pra praising the death scene. Well, God, you got to have a good death scene. I mean, that's what the whole play's about the death scene. Booth made the final appearance of his acting career at Ford's on March 18th, 1865, when he again played Duke Pesca. Kara in the apostate. He invested some of his growing wealth in various enterprises in the early 1860s, including land speculation in Boston's Back Bay section. He also started a business partnership with John A. Ellsler, manager of the Cleveland Academy of Music, and with Thomas Mears to develop oil wells in northwestern Pennsylvania, where an oil boom had started in August of 1859. Following Edwin Drake's discovery of oil there, initially calling their venture Dramatic Oil, but later renaming it Fuller Farm Oil. The partners investing in a 31 and a half acre site along the Allegheny River at Franklin, Pennsylvania, in late 1863 for drilling. By early 1864, they were they had a producing 1,900 foot deep oil well named Wilhelmina for Mears' wife, yielding 25 barrels of crude oil daily, then considered a good yield. The Fuller Farm Oil Company was selling shares with a prospectus featuring well-known actor celebrity status as Mr. J. Wilkes Booth. A successful and intelligent operator in oil lands. The partners were impatient to increase the well's output and attempted to, the use of explosives, which wrecked the well in an ended production. You dumbasses. Booth was already growing more obsessed with the South's worsening situation in the Civil War and angered at Lincoln's re-election. He withdrew from the oil business on November 27, 1864, with a, a substantial loss of his $6,000 investment, which is 81400 in today's money. And there's where we're going to leave John right now. This is, I guess, a two-parter or three? I was trying to figure it's it out. It's going to be two. It's going to be two. Okay. Next, because uh, 
you know, I, I mean, I don't want it to go three because it, it, it could be done in a two. Especially when you get to the kidnapping plot and the the, the assassination and then the, the hiding. Yeah. And it, <laughs> what I want to do, if I could ever find the video of it, I want to get video of like some actors doing the the escape route for John Wilkes Booth, mm-hmm. and I want to cut the um, cut that music out of it and put the Benny Hill theme in it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I might I might work on that tomorrow since I've got nothing going on. Watch, I mowed the yard today, and it's going to be a downpour tomorrow. Always happens. Right. So, we're going to wrap it up. Um, You know where to find us. Spotify, Apple, rate and review. Join the Facebook page. And for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs, I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Goodnight, Monica.